Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. We are pilots, athletes, gritty moms, or simply women that can't be ignored. I believe that every woman harbors the spirit of flight, and we are here to talk about the many ways it shows up and examine what happens physically, mentally, and emotionally when we defy gravity and rewrite the notions of what women can and should do. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, skier, mother, designer, and apparently podcaster. Thank you so much for being here today. Archetypes. The Flying Woman. You are going to love this one. An archetype is something deeply ingrained in our human psyche. It gives us an insight into something universal and can even reveal some truths or certainly big questions. But they are just ideas, and like any ideas, they can be both catalysts and something that holds us back. They appear in many forms, from the most heroic faces of our humanity to the darkest and more fearful archetypes. They allow us to express and understand the storylines of our lives. An archetype is not personal. It belongs to the collective and it is played out by the individuals who possess this sort of template. By understanding this, we can separate ourselves from it. We are both connecting to it and claiming the freedom and the space to witness its behavior. Most weeks, we give platform on this podcast to women to tell their stories. Real lives, airborne women, women who fly. But today, we step back from the individual and look at this idea collectively. What does it even mean when women fly? You tell me. From witches to divas, from beautiful absaras of the Hindu myths to the Wonder Woman comics, from Dante's guide in paradise to Freud's interpretation of dreams of flying, from the winged victory goddess Nike to modern-day Amelia Earhart. Serenity Young, my guest today, is author of Women Who Fly, Goddesses, Witches, Mystics, and Other Airborne Females. It's a powerful and thought-provoking investigation into the trope of the aerial female in various manifestations, shared across religions and through time. Serenity lives in New York City, where she is a research associate in the Department of Anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History and professor of classical, Middle Eastern, and Asian languages and cultures at Queens College. She received her PhD from Columbia College and has done fieldwork in India, Tibet, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Russia. Three of her books, besides Women Who Fly, have been written for high school students. Buddhism, An Introduction, and Hinduism, An Introduction, and Richard Francis Burton, Explorer, Scholar, and Spy. Today, we talk to Serenity about women who fly, and she stitches together a global history of women empowered by flight, and fleeing, and flying, and falling, and the constraints of patriarchy. I hope this episode gives you precious time and a bit of wisdom to appreciate influences that are beyond what we even are conscious of most of the time. An archetype is the perfect example or a model of something. 
they usually represent instinctual and universal patterns in human psyche, be they characters or something we've experienced. They are also very reductive and simplified versions of being human. And most of the ones in our history and our myths were written by men. So buyers, beware. We are not templates and we are not archetypes. But at the same time, what resonates with you? Quick note as we set the table here. In Jungian psychology, an archetype is an inherent pattern of thought derived from the past experiences of the collective and present in our unconscious minds. But Jung wasn't the first to talk about archetypes. In fact, the Greeks were the first culture to identify archetypes in that they referred to them as the original imprint or stamp. Plato believed that everything you see in this world has been created in some way, shape, or form prior. The soul needs the light and the shadow of the archetypal patterns. They reflect our collective human experience and transcend time, place, and even language. And what if, what if women had been the storytellers too? What story would Eve have told about picking the apple? That's our work today, every day. Women creating in this world, using our platforms to tell our stories, perspectives, and rewrite the narratives that surround us. We, you, me, our guests, the conversations you have in the afterglow of listening, we are creating space for women, the space to dig deep, for the courage to speak about their experiences and flex our confidence to tell new stories about women and men, power and sacrifice, love and loss, and the values we live by. Stories that champion compassion and collaboration, elevate communication over dissonance, and caretaking over victimhood. Today, we are the women telling our guiding origin stories about our hero myths, our ideal leaders, our visions and desires. But I digress. Just keep in mind that tectonic plates are shifting and stories for perhaps the first time in recorded storytelling time, are now being told by women. Modern media, for instance, allows me here today to hold this space and thousands of others. Women are telling their stories. Let's see how the narrative changes. I know I say every week that these conversations are really fun, but you'll notice that I really enjoy the conversation about airborne women. I just think it's fascinating. It's fascinating to think about the bigger context in which this podcast sits. Ask yourself, which archetypes are catalysts and which hold you back? Where are you going with your story? When we reckon with the symbols and gendered roles, we start to claim more agency to change and to heal. With no further delay, my conversation with Serenity Young, originally recorded in the spring of 2021. Serenity Young, I am so excited to talk to you today. This interview is a little different than my usual interviews. My interest in what you have to bring to the table today really 
revolves around a book that I came across called Women Who Fly, Goddesses, Witches, Mystics, and Other Airborne Females. And in that book, you reveal, and I'm going to quote a description that I did not write, you reveal the perennial fascination with and ambivalence about female power and sexuality. So I am so excited to talk to you today. (laughs) Where did that quote come from? I don't remember it, but it's on point. Yeah. So if you could just start this conversation with just a brief overview of the book, when someone asks you what the book is about, How do you describe it? Well, I always fumble because I don't know quite where to begin. But I think it's simplest to say that I take this motif, if you will, of uh, aerial women, and I stretch that uh, through time, through space, and in and I enlarge that category. So I go back to, you know, the Paleolithic. I'm so fond of it. And there are bird goddesses who are just these wonderful, just a shape with maybe two breasts and an eye and eyes. And it's the shape of the body that indicates their flight, a little bit like Joan Arp's uh, statue of flight. And then I followed that, though I'm not fond of them, into the uh, winged goddesses of the ancient Near East. And I kind of had a problem with that for them because they, you know, I loved that they were sexual. I loved that they were connected to fertility, but I didn't know what to do with them in terms of being goddesses of war at the same time. But then I thought, oh, my Valkyries. Mm -hmm. And I was off and running because It's also in India, you have these divine women who come down to earth to escort a male hero who has fallen in battle up to heaven. So it's very interesting going from Norse mythology to South Asian mythology. So from there, it was uh, different goddesses, of which there was an awful lot in Greece and Rome. Then there are those Christian mystic women, and they had two things going on. They had aerial experiences of levitating of flying up to trees. They spent a lot of time in trees on roofs. And a lot of them were anorexic, which is, you know, some recent scholarship uh, talks about that a lot. 
But I really took seriously their desire to make their bodies as light as possible. It's as if they were imitating birds, you know, who hardly have any weight at all. And so they felt that this lightness of body would help them to rise up into heaven. So, and then I concluded with aviation because it just got to a point and I said, I really have to follow it through. And what became fascinating there is that the same limitations that we can see historically being imposed on aerial women, aerial goddesses, happens to women in the history of aviation. So there is uh, this reduction of space for aerial women. Their, Their motion is more and more contained. And drifts very quickly, I would say, by the Dark Ages, into tales of captivity of aerial women. So the one that your listeners might be familiar with, Swan Maidens, who, and the stories go, that they go, you know, they're swimming around and then they they come on shore and they take off their swan suits and uh, then go back in the water. And of course, some guy happens along and grabs uh, one or more of their suits and the other ones gather their suits and fly away. So she is a captive and she is forced into a role of being a sexual partner, having children, and domestic drudgery. <laughs> so I think that, that the swan maiden motif was this ancient motif that came to women and they really, you know, because they would look up and see the birds, especially swans and geese migrating, and they saw their freedom and understood their own constraint. So I think that came out of a woman's desire to just be free of it all. So, as you can see, I've uh, encompassed a lot of... Uh, there's something for everyone in the book. There is so much. <laughs> there's so much in what you just said. <laughs> Clearly, your research and the book, which is a product of that, is an encyclopedia of the ways in which the motif of the airborne female is explored. And I just, I just find it fascinating. 
So you have this interesting layering in in the book of these Hindu myths and then Nordic symbols. And it gets really interesting to me when you start to talk about Superwoman. And I'm wondering if you can introduce us to her through your lens. Okay. I talk about Wonder Woman. I don't really talk about Superwoman because she's an afterthought, right, to Superman. Okay. 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 Continue. This is good. And Wonder Woman is her own. She comes forth. There's so much to be said about her creator, but we're going to leave that aside. Jill Lepore has written a whole book about this guy and uh, the the person who created Wonder Woman in 1930s. Yeah. You're saying okay. Okay, so that's a yeah, that's a, a listeners go read that for your reference because it is actually very interesting how she was created right as the war second world war was bubbling up, right? That's that's relevant. Yep. Yes. And so what do you see for her? What do you see how do you see the symbolism play out in terms of power and sexuality and sisterhood? Well, you know, it was the 1940s and 50s. And perhaps it's as uh, more as with the later. In the late 40s and 50s, it was like, let's get women back from the factories and in the home and having babies. Perhaps that's represented by her continual captivity that she's, you know, tied up or hanging from shackles. I mean, it's just like this enormously powerful woman as captive, which goes back to my swan maidens of being captured. And I think that fed all kinds of fantasies for men and boys that declawed her, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And she had that ridiculous disguise. You know, she put on glasses And I believe she began as an army nurse, and that's how she met the man she was obsessively in love with, but their relationship never even came to a kiss. And she would often have to rescue him, but they were, you know, and you see her carrying him from his broken plane. But he's unconscious, so he doesn't have, he has not experienced that he was saved by this powerful woman. My own experience with her and with other female comic books and films, I mean, deep into the 60s, is if there was Barbara Stanwyck being the great example of being a forthright, you know, difficult woman in the sense she wasn't doing what men wanted, but always humiliated 
in the end and reconciled to marriage. And then you assume once they're reconciled to that, then they soften completely. And that former woman who was so captivating to you as a young girl growing up is destroyed. I mean, that was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Oh my gosh. And so what's your take on Amelia Earhart? First of all, I don't think it's understood how much of her time she devoted to working for the cause of women, not just in aviation, but in all kinds of ways. And that she was a nurse's aide in Canada during World War I, just at the end of it. And I think that she was so shaped by that experience of the mutilation of these beautiful young men and the waste of it all. And that went a long way in shaping who she was. Also, what I like tremendously about her is she wanted so much to escape from the expectations around her. And she was a woman in the right time in the right place because World War II was over and she was dirt poor. She came from a middle-class family, but dad was a bit of a mess. And she was able to purchase a plane. And I believe her, as I recall, her first flying lesson was with a man. And then she said, never again. And she found a female instructor and the rest is history. Now, her, claim, her initial claim to fame is that she, she went through all kinds of things to become the passenger when Lindbergh flew the Atlanta, Atlantic. And she actually got on Lindbergh's flight through, I can't remember his first name, but Simon, of the publisher, Simon and Schuster. And he fell for her in a big way. Mm -hmm. And she just didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he really pursued her for years. And he was an extraordinarily wealthy man, and she needed airplanes. She needed better airplanes in order to do better aeronautical feats that would, you know, demonstrate women's abilities to do this. 
to fly and to, and to be exceptional. So I think she waited until she was about 36, very modern woman, and she agreed to marry him, but uh, she set her terms, which I really like because many times when an aerial woman was captured, she would set a taboo. Uh, for the man, if you do this, I will leave you. I'll, you know, be able to fly away, which they always did. They would mess up. And she said in her letter to him, if at the end of a year we are not happy with each other, let us just walk away. And it was the marriage had to be a certain way. And the only footage I've seen of her with him is when she's about to get into her plane to do something. And the reporters are saying, you know, because he's there, oh, give us. Can you give us a kiss? Let's see a kiss. And she kisses him, but it is the most awkward peck on the mouth <laughs> imaginable. It's just like it makes you wonder what were the terms of their marriage. So I don't know if it's a, a rumor. Maybe you know this, but I've been under the understanding that there was a letter between the two of them in which she said, basically, yes, I will agree to marry you, but without any of the traditional structures of marriage and meaning she can do whatever she wants. Yeah. And I, and I took that as... Yes, it's the same... You know, professionally, sexually, relationship-wise. Yes, that's quite true. Yeah. Yes. And so do you think it was a marriage of convenience? I think she had real affection for him, and they, they did live together. She did seem to have had other men in her life, and mm -hmm. he was uh, okay with that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they had a highfalutin lifestyle, and so... She constantly had to be doing sensational things in order to bring in money, even though he was very wealthy. I mean, her planes got more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was one of the reasons that one of the reasons that she chose to go on her last flight to circumnavigate the globe at the equator where her plane was lost. But she did do groundbreaking things. She was extremely courageous. She crashed more than once and got up on that 
horse right away again. You know, she, they, in those early days, you learned your lessons the hard way. And the fact that she, she used her fame for women and she spoke of that. She said, what I have done, all women can do. That I'm not just speaking to aviators or aviatrixes, <laughs> as they were. Which is something we might want to touch on in a, in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> those two terms. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And that because she was such a public figure, they wanted her all across America. I mean, so she was giving talks at Rotary Clubs and women's clubs and really speaking this very feminist line. Mm -hmm. But it was acceptable. I think perhaps they thought about her as the exceptional woman. And that's something that really grates on, on me, the mm. idea. Because if she's exceptional and we're not, you know, the whole world is telling us about our limitations, then we can't do what she did. And so, yeah, tell, tell me more about this idea of exceptionalism and the rub it has for you. I think it's important. Well, also with the mystics, these women in the Middle Ages really had some freedom. They, first of all, they gave up marriage. They were celibate. They went into a community of other women and the and anyone who had or the few that really had these intense mystical revelations they've always been presented as exceptional so a woman of faith I care not whether you're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist, whatever, your life will not measure up to these exceptional women. So let me ask you, as we need to close up our conversation, which I, I could talk to you for a very long time, but I want to know what you want the modern day Ariel woman to know about these symbols and how the fascination with sexuality and female power, how that shows up today? I would like them to know this very long, deep, deep history of aerial women and to know that it was exclusively female for the longest time. So, you know, the goddesses lost 
meant their wings and stuff, you know, they just have a bird motif, like Athena with the owl. But women in several cultures, which I can't go too far into now, were believed to have to have that ability. It was natural to them. And so that it's unnatural for men to be flying, but uh, very natural for women. And this, well, first of all, there's just fun stuff to learn, but the history is so broad and so various that got us into the space age. And women have been active players from the beginning and have at the same time been denied access. Even during World War II, they didn't want women to fly when they were menstruating. And then <laughs> even in the space program, that was offered as a reason. It couldn't be a woman because, you know, she'd start menstruating in outer space and God knows what would happen. I mean, it just was like brought up. Oh, gosh. So it's been a bloody battle and one in which... Our sisters have conducted themselves with nobility and, and humor. And it is also that these women who are not really looking for permanent relationships are sexual beings. They just don't have that, you know, you don't do that until you're married or you do do that, but you really got to latch on to one mostly guy, but it has to be a permanent, lead to a permanent relationship. And, and, and these, the Valkyries, for instance, were often lovers to, to heroes. And had a sexuality about them, and certainly the fierce goddesses are known for that. And which takes us back to the ancient Near Eastern goddesses of love, which is actually sexuality. <laughs> You know, the romantic love is a long time later. <laughs> but okay, they're goddesses of love and of war. And the last thing that I might add here is in terms of uh, power, to contrast uh, the male hero and the major motifs of his uh, story is that he goes forth 
into the wilderness or the unknown. So he's leaving patriarchal society behind him. And there may be a woman that he gets involved with and abandons or all this happens. And he returns triumphant to patriarchal society with the story of his adventures, perhaps with a captured woman (laughs) and, you know, some wealth. Now, the heroine is not the good girl who heroically stands by her man, who holds the family together. No. The heroine goes out into the unknown, and she keeps going. She has no interest at all in returning to patriarchy. She's gone. And let's remember, uh, flight is also connected with fleeing fleeing restrictions or feelings of captivity because you're being told you can't do this or you can't do that. So women have the power to do all of these things. And I hope people will read the book. Read it slowly. Take it, take chapters as they strike your fancy and let it percolate that it's what 2021 6,000 years ago there are sculptures of bird women of these women who could go from earth to the sky to they could be reach the divine they were conceived as messengers. Our story is a very old one, whether we are winged or not. Oh my goodness, Serenity. There is so much wealth in your research and the book itself. I personally just, for someone who is fascinated in flight as a metaphor and also as a physical experience. I feel like your your book is a is a treasure chest and and like you said it's something that I have gone back to. I've probably had it for about a year or so and it is an encyclopedia so it's not something you just go through and read, but you you refer to it and you think about these characters and some are mirrors and some are windows and some are just sort of bizarre supernatural. Yes. You know, within this context which is very different and yet in some ways similar. And it's just, it's sort of boggling. And I just hope that I know that my listeners are going to be equally as fascinated in this conversation and um, the, the sort of continued conversation of what it means for women to fly. Thank you, Serenity, for your time and being so generous. Thank you. I'm so happy to have had this moment to talk with you. Well, did you even know what you were in for? 
What an incredible chronicle of the figure of the flying woman in myth, art, and pop culture. But we are that, and that is us, isn't it? Serenity, thank you for your deep commitment to this investigation and for giving more nuance and complexity to the history of women and the roles women play. I promised you a question at this bookend, and actually I have three. You can email me at hello at whenwomenfly.com. Number one, what do you want to hear more of? Number two, is long format, roughly 60 minutes, too long? And number three, what has inspired you most in the 35 plus podcast episodes of When Women Fly? I really appreciate your feedback. Hello at When Women Fly is my email address. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, whenwomenfly.com, and you'll find more information on our guests and the show notes. We post episodes every week. I appreciate you spending another hour with me on the When Women Fly podcast. So if this resonates with you, follow, share, and review. All of this helps the podcast growth and discoverability. Believe in the transformative power of story. Just share an episode and you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.